Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. 2 Chronicles chapter 16. The title of this morning's message is Beware of Backsliding, a warning from the latter days of good King Asa. Um, this is going to be a two-part message. I feel like sometimes I need to apologize for two-part messages, but I will tell you that I endeavor to uh, do each message in such a way that if you have to miss the other one, you still would have gotten um, some solid teaching from the, the Word of God. I hope you are able to come back next week, but if you don't, I uh, trust that you will be um, blessed by what we're going to be looking at today, although it is a difficult subject. We're going to talk about the subject of backsliding. Now, that word appears several times times in the Old Testament in uh, most English translations. I'm just going to give you an example of it in Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 5. It says, why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit they refuse to return. So you will find a, a, a scattering of verses in the Old Testament in the English version that are translated backslide, but um, you could possibly look at that in another version and it might not be translated backsliding. So what I want to do is I am using that word for the purposes of this sermon um, in the way that we Christians have come to use it to refer to the state of a genuine Christian, someone who is truly saved, but who for a time is in rebellion against God, either persisting in unconfessed sin or neglecting the spiritual disciplines such as prayer and the Word, that uh, there is a resulting spiritual weakness and sickness and loss of spiritual fervor. So what I'm talking about today with backsliding is different than what we would generally call apostasy. Uh, we generally use the word apostasy to refer to someone who had professed faith in Christ, was seemingly walking with Christ, and then had a complete uh, turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ, disavowed faith, and we believe in that situation, that person was never saved to begin with. As uh, John said in his first epistle, they went out from us because they really weren't of us. So what I'm talking about is a genuine Christian I'm going to quote to you from the Westminster Confession. Uh, Article 17 is on the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of once saved, always saved, that if a person is truly saved, truly born again, God will cause that one to persevere. They will never finally fall away. They will be brought safe home to heaven. That's the perseverance of the saints. In that article, Article 7, Section 3, which, by the way, is almost word for word the, the, uh, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. The Baptist of London in that day of England pulled off the Westminster Confession and changed it in several different ways. Uh, one would be to reflect immersion baptism rather than sprinkling, but this is basically the same in both confessions. And regarding the perseverance of the saints, it says, nevertheless, they may, meaning true Christians, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their perseverance, perseverance, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. They may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. So that's what I'm using as the definition 
definition of backsliding today for the purpose of this message, that they may, true saints may, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. Um, now, that a, that a true child of God will be preserved to the end, will not forfeit salvation, um, though that is the truth, we are sternly warned against backsliding. There is always a, a personal cost, sometimes a terrible personal cost to backsliding, as we're going to see today. Um, but worse, it dishonors God. Uh, for a Christian to, to slide back in his walk with the Lord and be lukewarm and cold spiritually or to fall into grievous sins, that is a, that's a sin against the righteous law of God. But worse, it's a sin against uh, his love and grace that was shown to his people in the suffering and death of his son. That was the terrible cost that God the Father paid to forgive us of our sins. So to continue unrepentant in sins is, 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 a, is a grievous thing for a child of God. So God's promise to keep his people eternally secure or to cause them to persevere uh, should not make us lax or, or careless. Rather, it, it, ought to, it ought to light a fire under us to be even more diligent to seek God's grace to persevere faithful to the end. So we, we must beware of backsliding. We need to see it as a very real danger because... Two things, Scripture teaches us by precept and example that it is possible for a true believer to do that. We are warned against backsliding, uh, but we are also provided with examples of children of God who backslid, and the Holy Spirit led the authors of Scripture to write about their lives to serve as a warning to us. So this morning, we're going to reach back into the Old Testament history and we're going to look at one of these saints of God who backslid. And it is a warning to us that a man whose life is overall characterized by faithfulness and sincere devotion to the God can backslide, and sadly in his case, he ends his days in spiritual decline and misery. And so his, his life, in this case, good King Asa, serves as a warning to us. Well, let me take a few moments and let's talk about Asa. And by the way, you don't need to turn there, uh, but, but the parallel passage is in 1 Kings chapter 15. Whenever you're studying either 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and then 1 and 2 Chronicles, you need to, to, to see if there's a parallel passage and study both of them because one may contain details that the other one does not. So at several points in this message, I am going to refer back to 1 Corinthians. Uh, Kings chapter chapter 15, but we're going to be in 2 Chronicles um, 16. But just a brief biography of Asa. We're going to need to go back to uh, his great-grandfather Solomon. Now, you remember Solomon was David's son, and he was king of all Israel, and God had given him great power and prosperity and wisdom. But later on in life, Solomon, because of the influence of his foreign wives, began to also worship false gods. And God, God told Solomon, because you've done this, I'm going to tear your kingdom in two. But God was merciful and said it would not take place until the reign of your son, Rehoboam. So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, begins to reign somewhere around 930 B.C. And during that time, early in the reign, the ten northern tribes of Israel broke away 
to, to form their own kingdoms. So they had sort of had a civil war as well. Um, and so in, in their case, the north left the south. The ten northern tribes of Israel broke away from the two southern ones, and they carried the name of Israel with them. So the northern kingdom would retain the name of Israel. The two tribes that were left were Judah and Benjamin, and ever thereafter, they would be called the kingdom of Judah. So sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of of Israel. The southern kingdom continued to be ruled by David's David's descendants. So, from the time of Rehoboam forward, for about a little over two centuries, you now have two kingdoms, and you have two kings and two capitals, and there was war between them on and off the whole time, the south against the north. It would continue until the northern kingdom was finally destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians as uh, as a discipline uh, uh, from God because of their idolatry. Now, the northern kingdom, Israel, had no godly kings. They never had one godly king. But the southern kingdom of Judah had a handful of godly kings, including King Asa, the we're going to look at today. Now, you may know that uh, dates in the, it's kind of hard to date Old Testament uh, events and the reigns of kings, but generally King Asa is said to have reigned or thought to have reigned from 913 to 873 BC for about 41 years. Now, King Asa was a godly man. Let me get you to back up to chapter 14 for just a minute. Look at verses 1 through 4. Abijah, that's Asa's father, Rehoboam's son. So Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days the land was quiet for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places, and broke down the sacred pillars, and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah, the southern kingdom, to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to observe the law, and and the commandments. So he was a godly man. Um, going back to those idols that his, that his grandfather, uh, great-grandfather Solomon had put up, he started tearing them down, tearing down the idols, and commands Judah to go back to worshiping Jehovah, the, the, true, the true God. Um, so he was a godly man. First Kings 15, 14 says, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. So overall, he was like his, his great-great-grandfather David. He never departed from, from the Lord, but like his great-great-grandfather David, there was, he was known for a great sin in his life. He had a period of backsliding. Uh, No doubt he was a child of God, but his life serves as a warning to us. Well, let's go ahead and start looking at the the text here. And point number one is going to be the occasion of Asa's backsliding. And that will be verse one, the occasion of Asa's backsliding. Verse one says this, in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, it's technically Baasha, but it's easier to say Baasha, so you'll know who I mean. Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah 
and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So the occasion of his backsliding is it starts as a trial. It's a severe trial. And you and I need to understand that any trial that we face, regardless of the form or the severity, it can be an occasion for backsliding if we're not careful. If we respond wrongly, it can end up plunging us downward spiritually. Um, Or if we're already in a backslidden condition, we're more likely to, to respond to that trial sinfully, and therefore the trial just serves to show or to reveal that we are backslidden. Now, As I said, there have been war on and off between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom since the beginning, but there was an ebb and flow. Uh, We we read that for the first decade of Asa's reign, there was relative peace and prosperity, but later in his reign, his kingdom of Judah was threatened by the northern kingdom led by King Basha. So we we need to understand our characters here. We have King Asa, who is the king of the south of Judah, and then King Basha, who is the king of the north of, of Israel. So um, there, we are told that uh, after that time of the, the, the initial 10 years of peace, um, that there was war between Asa and, and Basha continually. 1 Kings 15, 16 says, now there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days, starting at the end of that 10-year 10 10 year period. So in The 36th year of Asa's reign, according to verse 1, Basha decides to fortify Ramah. Okay, Ramah is the the Hebrew word for height, and there's actually six places that are named Ramah. This one, and it's very important to understand this, it's actually located in the tribe of Benjamin, the tribal allotment of Benjamin, which really belonged to Judah. So at some point, um, Israel, the northern kingdom seems to have taken that from the southern southern kingdom, but it's just six miles north of Jerusalem. It's six miles north of the capital of the southern kingdom. So here Basha decides to fortify this city. Um, he's building up a military stronghold basic, uh, on the doorstep of the capital of the southern kingdom. Um, can you imagine an enemy building up a, a fortification six miles from Washington, D.C.? If you can, you understand this is a threat This is a threat to the southern kingdom. Now, why did Basha do this? Well, it says says in verse 1 again um, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Um, To understand what he's talking about there, go back up to chapter 15, verse 9. It says, Then he, Asa, gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who sojourned with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, those are northern tribes, for they came over to him in great numbers from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So there were northerners, there were people who lived in the northern kingdom, and they saw what was going on in the south, how, how, how Asa had led a revival and God had blessed them with peace and prosperity, and they want to continue to, to, to worship the true God, and so they're migrating from from the north down to the south. And so Basha, the king of the north, is saying, I've got to stop the bleeding here. My people are going over to my enemy. And so he is trying to fortify that city that's six miles from Jerusalem and is located on the main route from Jerusalem up to up to Israel. So Asa sees this as a grave threat. My enemy is building up a stronghold six miles away from my capital. Something's got to be, got to be done. 
He's facing a threat from a powerful foe. Now, you and I as Christians, we, we're in a war, okay? Um, it's been said that the Christian life is like a, a war. I have a dear friend who was kind of a mentor to me who said, no, it's not like a war, it is war. We are in a war. We're in a constant state of war with Satan and his demons, the world around us, and especially remaining corruption in our hearts, our flesh. And, and we, we go from battle to battle. Um, of course, in some way, every day's a battle. Uh, to some day, every day we're to some degree tempted and tried, but, but you know and I know that there are times we have special battles, maybe trials, suffering, whatever the form may take. And um, and you know, ones of special significance, and each one represents an opportunity to obey God, trust God, honor Him, and glorify Him. It's also an opportunity, if we're not careful, to give in to sin and dishonor Him and go backwards. So Ace is faced with this situation. What's he going to do? His enemy is building up a stronghold six miles from his capital. Well, first, we need to go back to understand the significance of how this falls out. We need to see what he had done with a, with a, a similar trial years earlier. So go back to chapter 14. We're in Second Chronicles, chapter 14, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to read through verse 13. Then Zerah, the Ethiopian came out against them, meaning Asa and Judah, with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Merishah. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephatha at Merishah. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power to, to help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you." So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army, and they carried away very much spoil. So years earlier, a million-man army of Ethiopians, and actually Libyans, we find out from a parallel passage, came up against Asa and Judah, outnumbered them probably more than two to one. And Asa, at that point, he prays to God, he exercises faith in Jehovah, and God gives him a great victory over the Ethiopians and the Libyans, and they carry away great spoil, and we find in chapter 15 that there's a great spiritual revival, and God brings peace and prosperity and wealth to the southern kingdom, and Asa is lifted up in the eyes of those around him. So he faced that situation with faith. Um, he understood what Psalm 33, 16 through 17 said, there is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. He knew then, I must trust in the Lord, and the Lord gave him a great victory over the, over the, the Ethiopians. So Asa, as a result of that, became stronger and richer. He led a, a, a spiritual reformation in Judah. Uh, it, they have peace and prosperity. And again, Basha up in the northern kingdom is looking at this, and he feels threatened. So he decides to uh, get some insurance by fortifying Ramah. And Asa sees this, and he feels threatened by it. Now, 
you would think, in light of what Asa had experienced years earlier, that great victory that God gave them over this million-man army, that Asa would go, well, I know what to do. I need to fall on my face before God again. I need to trust God and plead for Him to to give us a victory again. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. You would have thought Asa would have done that, but he didn't remember the name of the Lord his God. Let's go on to see what he did do in point number two, the progression of Asa's backsliding. The progression of Asa's backsliding. Look at verse 2. Then Asa brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. Here, I have sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So what we find out is that Basha, the northern king, he was not only fortifying the city of Ramah, but he had also gone and formed a treaty with Ben-Hadad of Syria. Now, Syria, Syria exists today, uh, it's an ancient nation. Um, It's located to the north of Israel, kind of the northwest, capital Damascus, and uh, they they were pagans. They worshiped false gods. Well, King Basha of Israel had formed an alliance with Ben-Hadad, the king of, of Syria. So you got another, another name to remember, Asa, Basha, and Ben-Hadad. So Asa's looking at this situation, and he knows if open war breaks out with Israel, he's not only going to face Israel, but he's going to have to face the Syrians as well. And he's apparently afraid he cannot defeat both. So he's facing this tremendous trial, and what does he do? He doesn't trust the Lord, but he devises a plan. He goes and he takes the silver and gold out of the house of God, the temple, and out of his own house, he takes his personal uh, gold and silver. And by the way, the parallel passage in 1 Kings uh, 15, 18 says he took all of it the money and the valuables uh, out of the house of God and his own funds, and he gives it to his servants, and he sends them to Syria, to Ben-Hadad, with a message and says, let there be a treaty between us. I'm going to give you the silver and gold and break your alliance with Basha, king of Israel. And he appeals to the fact that uh, years earlier, there had been a treaty between Syria and Judah, between Asa's father, Abijah, and Ben-Hadad's father, Tabrimim, which uh, we find those names in the, other, in the other account. So Asa is now desperate to renew that treaty. So what he's doing is he's basically bribing King Ben-Hadad to break his alliance with Basha and make an alliance with him, with Asa. Now, the plan is risky. It's risky. Uh, The parallel account um, says that the servants take the silver and gold. Now, they're having to travel all the way up to Syria. I don't know if they snuck through Israel and hoped to to not be detected and captured or if they took a circuitous route. I don't know, but it's risky. And they're also, it's risky because they don't know if Ben-Hadad is going to agree or not. He could have just theoretically taken the money and, uh, and said, nope, 
You know, he could have stolen the money and not gone, gone along with Asa. But verse 4 says this. Look at verse 4. So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa. He heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. They attacked Ijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. So it ends up that uh, Asa, actually, excuse me, Ben-Hadad agrees with Asa. He decides to betray Basha of Israel and make an alliance with Asa of, of Judah. And so he now turns his armies on his former on his former friends. And he sends his troops into northern Israel. All those cities are in northern Israel. In 1 Kings 15, we find out that he also uh, sent them against the area of Chinnereth around the Sea of Galilee and in the, the tribal allotment of Naphtali. So those are, the, those are the, the cities and regions of Israel closest to Syria. And just interestingly enough, it's also the area, some of those were the, area, the areas where our Lord Jesus would live and minister 900 years later. So, the plan worked. Ben-Hadad said, okay, Asa, I'll take the silver and gold. I'll break my alliance. I'll betray Basha, and I'll ally myself with you. Instead of attacking you, I'll attack the northern kingdom. Look at verse 5. Now, it happened when Basha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Basha had used for building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. So um, King Basha in Israel, he hears what's happened. He's like, my former friend is now attacking me. And so now he's got to be worried about defending his northern borders, defending against his former ally, and so he just drops the building program down at Ramah below Jerusalem. Um, Ben-Hadad's treachery, treachery apparently took him by surprise. So, man, Asa's plan worked. Basha's no longer fortifying Ramah. But, boy, there's icing on the cake. Apparently, they just, they just left it completely. And so we find out from 1 Kings 15 that Asa sends out this, this encompassing draft, and he drafts all the men of, of, of Judah to go to, to go to Ramah and gets the, material, the building materials. He gets a wealth of building materials, and then he builds up two of his cities on the border, Geba and Mitzvah. So from Asa's standpoint, the plan worked magnificently. Now, he was out of fortune, but it worked magnificently. Basha's threat is neutralized. His enemy, northern, the northern kingdom, Israel, is weakened. He's gained a powerful new ally in Ben-Hadad of Syria, Ramah. Uh, not only did Basha have to leave off building it up, but now Ramah comes back into the possession of Judah, and he gets a wealth of building materials, and now he's able to fortify two of his border cities against any future threat. He thinks it's all gone great. But what Asa did not realize, or that he was willingly ignorant of, is that he had sinned greatly against the Lord in what he did. He's faithfully followed the Lord all his life, but here he sins against him greatly. And maybe because it worked out so well, he just didn't even, didn't even really, he didn't stop to think about it. Well, he sinned and God sends a prophet. We have another character introduced here, Hanani. 
the seer or the prophet. Look at verse 7 through verse 9. And at that time, Hanani the seer, or the prophet, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand." For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. So God is displeased with Asa. And God sends his prophet Hanani, and he declares to Asa, You have sinned. You relied on Ben-Hadad instead of me. And this is the consequences. Syria has escaped out of your hand. The implication is, yes, Asa, you may have had war with Syria, but I would have given them into your hands just as I had done years ago with the Ethiopians, and you would have destroyed your your enemies. So Asa would have still had his treasure had he relied on the Lord and not the Syrians. And more importantly, he would have had his, his integrity intact and his witness intact. But the prophet says, you have done foolishly in verse 9. Now, let's stop and consider the magnitude of Asa's sin and how it led to more sin. We'll see that next week. It started with a lack of faith. That is not how all backslidings start, but sometimes they do. We come up against a trial and we don't meet it with faith. Romans 14.23 says, For whatsoever is not from faith is sin. So he made a decision not to trust and rely on God. That then led him to rely upon his own wisdom and his own craftiness. Rather than seek God's counsel, he devised his own plan. Now, I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying it's wrong to plan. Of course we need to plan. Of course we need to use resources that we are given, but they must be done in a right way from faith. That is not what Asa did. Asa sinned. He trusted in his own wisdom. He trusted in his own abilities, his craftiness, and he trusted in money, gold and silver. First Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. So here Asa is trusting in his gold and silver. He trusts in his gold and silver, yet not his own, or at least not all of it was his own. He robs the house of God. He goes to the temple and he takes the gold and silver that God's people had given to God. He takes that money and he does add it to his own and uses that. Um, Malachi 3.8, we hear this a lot. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? Well, here it's almost literal robbery because he goes into the treasury of the house of God and takes the gold and the silver in addition to his own. Now, Asa had previously given generously. I won't read it to you, but we find that back up in uh, chapter 15, verse 18. But now he's taking from the Lord and buying off a pagan king. So a lack of faith might lead you and I to be faithless stewards. Um, you show me a Christian who has stopped giving or who never has been giving faithfully, uh, that's one who has either never grown, we have to, we have to allow for possible immaturity and, and, and ignorance, 
But in many cases, it's backsliding. It's backsliding. Then, because he didn't act in faith, he was tempted to be unethical. He was unethical. He bribed another king to break an alliance with an ally. Now, that Ben-Hadad and Basha were both ungodly men is, is not relevant here. Asa was unethical. And then, he, because he, he acted in, in a lack of faith, he was unequally yoked with the ungodly. You remember how many times in the Pentateuch the Israelites were told, do not make alliances with the surrounding nations. Well, here he goes and makes an alliance with the ungodly, with the Syrians. And then, final note here, he unleashed violence and murder on the people of Israel. Now, we know they were in a state of war on and off, but this was needless. Again, what does it say? Ben-Hadad turned his armies on the cities of Israel. Ijon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and the storage cities of Naphtali, and then Chinnereth and, and Naphtali. And so this, this murder and mayhem and violence is now unleashed on the people of the northern part of, of Israel. Spurgeon said this, So this good man, Asa, this good man, by his lack of faith, fell into many sins. For I am compelled to add that he had to bear the blame of the consequences of his conduct. For when Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, came up and attacked Israel, he did not satisfy himself with a battle or two, but he started plundering the Israelites and murdering them wholesale, so that great sorrows were brought upon the people of Israel. And who was to blame for these sorrows except the king of Judah, who had hired the Syrians for that very purpose? He who ought to have been a brother to the Israelites became their destroyer. And every time the cruel sword of the Syrians killed the women and children of Israel, the poor afflicted people had Asa to thank for it. The beginning of sin is like the letting out of waters. No one can foresee what devastation the floods may cause. Brethren, we can never tell what may be the consequences of one wrong action. We may kindle a fire in the forest merely to warm our own hands, But where the sparks may fly and how many miles the conflagration may spread, an angel cannot prophesy. Let us jealously keep away from every doubtful deed, lest we bring evil consequences upon others as well as ourselves. End of quote. So do you see that progression of backsliding? Asa starts a downward spiral. And it began with a very simple sin. Not a small sin, but a simple sin. That was a lack of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now the question is raised, Why, Asa? Why didn't you rely on the Lord like you had years earlier when you were faced with an even more powerful foe? Well, the Scripture text doesn't say Uh, Was this the beginning of his backsliding, or was he already backslidden? I I, I kind of suspect it's the latter. I I, I suspect that maybe he had already started to slide. You know, it it just seems so often when we enjoy a period of peace and prosperity that we start to get lax spiritually. We start to get kind of comfortable, and and, uh, maybe that's what happened to Asa. Maybe he just starts to slide gradually 
slides away from prayer and the word. And so when the threat arose, he, he reacts in fear rather than, rather than faith. Um, he starts to act in self-confidence. Well, I know what I'll do. I can handle this. I'll just buy off Ben-Hadad to turn on, on my enemy. So I, I think that he probably reacted out of fear and that that revealed that he was already beginning to backslide. He should have listened to Psalm 56.3, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. But he didn't. He trusted in a, in a pagan king. So we need to beware. Giving in to fear, failing to exercise faith in God can lead us to commit other sins. In fact, it can lead to a whole host of other sins. So when you and I face trials and temptations and challenges and battles, we need to do so with faith. We need to take God at His Word that He'll help us. We need to look back in our own experience and see where He's helped us before when we exercised faith. Again, Hannah and I reminded Asa, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim, the, 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 the Libyans, were they not a huge army? And did I not help you? It was a massive army with cavalry and chariots, the tanks of that day, fierce. Judah had been outnumbered more than two to one. Yet, yet God says, because you were, or Hannah and I said, because you relied on the Lord, God gave you the victory. So that's what Asa should have done is remember the promises of the Lord and look back to what he had done previously and he would have had strength to face that trial and honor God in the process. Um, I, I'm sure if you're a believer, you can think back to a time when you faced a great trial and you went to the Lord in faith and God came through for you according to his promise. Uh, we ought to always look back and see what God has done, and know that He is an unchanging God. Puritan John Flavel wrote, Quiet your trembling heart by recording and consulting your past experiences of the care and faithfulness of God in former distresses. These experiences are food for your faith. Now, let me say one more thing before we begin to wrap this up. Again, if you'll look at the end of verse 7, okay, where he said that I would have given you you know, your enemies have escaped out of your hand. Yeah, I'm sorry, the end of verse 7. Therefore, the army of the king of Assyria has escaped from your hand. The implication being, if there had been war, Asa, they would not have escaped. I would have given you, I would have given you victory over them. So Hanani points out to Asa that he has forfeited a blessing, a great blessing. When you and I sin to some degree or another, in some form or another, we do forfeit blessings. I, I kind of suspect that just as, as, as you can look back and see times where God gave you a victory because of faith, you can probably look back at times where you backslid and you know you forfeited a blessing. Um, I, I can do that in my life. I look back at times in my life where I, for a period, was in rebellion against God or spiritually lukewarm, and I have no question, I forfeited blessings in addition to whatever negative consequences by way of God's discipline I brought on myself and others, I know I forfeited blessings. Asa forfeited a blessing. And Hannah and I said, from now on, you are going to have continual war. No more peace in your time, Asa. Now, he brought on himself terrible consequences, terrible consequences on the, on, on the people of Judah. 
Um, he was he undermined his witness. Can you imagine what Ben Hadad, this pagan king, must have thought? I hear these worshippers of Jehovah coming to me, a worshipper of a false god they call, and they're looking to me to bail them out. Oh yeah, what what kind of witness was that for the true God? Now Asa's sin was not outright idolatry. When it, when the, the verse that I quoted to you or read to you at the beginning of the message where it said that he was loyal to the Lord all his days, he was. It's never recorded that Asa turned against Jehovah and began to worship false gods. But he did turn to the followers of false gods to rescue him. Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, another nation. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. They need to always seek the Lord. Listen, if this good man that the Bible says was loyal to the Lord all the days of his life If this man whose life overall was characterized by a fervor for the Lord and true love and devotion, if he could backslide, you and I need to beware as well. We need to understand that no no matter how strong we are, how strong we've been, no matter how much progress we've made in our walk with Christ, there is always a possibility of falling. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. You can mark it down as a Christian. You're going to keep fighting battles. You're going to keep having trials. Um, And you must ask God for the grace to stand in faith. Remember what he's done for you in the past and stand in faith. Stand in faith. I wish I could tell you as we keep reading that that Asa repents immediately, but he doesn't. He begins to spiral downward, um, giving us even more reason to beware of ourselves. His condition, his experience serves as a dire warning to us to beware of backsliding. But folks, I want to end this on a note of mercy, which is what God would want us to do. If you have backslidden in the past and you have repented, God has washed that away. God has washed that away. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have genuinely repented in godly sorrow before God, you have been forgiven. You are cleansed completely. If, if If you are backslidden today... Yes, you need to understand how dire your situation is. You need to understand that you have not only forfeited blessings, but you are risking God's discipline in your life if you've not already experienced it. I said, I've been there. I know what that is. If you are in a backslidden state, you need to repent now. Okay? You say, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't have to know what you've done. I know what God's Word says, that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And you come back to your Heavenly Father, He's going to forgive you. He's going to cleanse you. Jeremiah 3.22 says, Return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. And then the people says, Indeed, we do come to you, for you are the Lord our God. 
say that today if you're backslidden. Yes, Lord, I'm going to come back to you in repentance. And God says he'll forgive you, he'll welcome you back, and give you grace to move forward in your walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a merciful and gracious God. We thank you, Lord, that your electing, redeeming love once placed on an individual is never taken away because you are a God who does not change. We confess, Lord, that we are weak and we wrestle with sin and to our shame we sometimes, yea, even often fall and sometimes persist in a a state of backsliding. But thank you, God, that you are faithful to us, that in love you call us to repentance. And when we do, that you wash away our sins, that you restore us, and you set us on our way again. We thank you, Heavenly Father. We thank you that because of Christ, because he died on a cross, because he shed his blood, that your people are forever saved and secure. May that not make us lax. May it make us more cautious and more passionate to live in love and thankfulness and obedience. We thank you, Lord, and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.